Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. To whom shall I compare this generation? Jesus once asked rhetorically. He went on to liken those of that era with spoiled, self-centered children. That is, those who had particular expectations of others, but in the end only wanted things their own way. He might have been talking about people of any time span, really. No matter how much we know, or rather think we know, and no matter how much advance we might imagine ourselves to be over those generations which preceded us, we remain both ignorant and immature. We do know so much more about our world and about the universe beyond than did our predecessors. And yet we still have the same attitude toward people of the past as children who look at something that their parents don't know, that they know. That is, we look down our noses at their supposed lack of sophistication and understanding. We might even laugh at what we consider to be their superstitions. And yet, although they may have attempted to comprehend and to describe the workings of creation in what to our thinking might seem to be comical ways, at least those of earlier eras understood that the world around them was not just subject to the tangible and the perceivable, to the measurable and to the explainable. No, within our world, usually hidden from our sight and from our perceptions, but no less real, dwell beings of a spiritual nature, some who battle for us and some who battle against us. And we ought not to deny this simply on account of our not being able to see them or to measure them. To do that would be every bit as ignorant as it once might have been to deny gravity or electricity or aerodynamics. What we cannot see or perceive or understand is not unexistent. It is simply unknown. Faith faith trusts, rather, that what God has chosen to reveal to us is adequate for us for the time being. And while our intellect and our egos might seek to know more and more each day and might even aspire to be like God, our limitations as human beings will prevent this until He chooses a time to bring us all to full understanding. So what are we to make of Jesus' parables then? On the surface, they seem tailored to explain by way of analogy things that might otherwise be too complex, more complex than many might understand. On the other hand, we have it said by the Lord Himself in the Gospel accounts that He intentionally spoke to the crowd in parables because it was not for them to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. So which is it then? Are the parables meant to enlighten or to obscure? To reveal truths or to keep them hidden? Well, a parable can bring some people, sometimes even those of even modest intelligence, to a better understanding of God and to reveal His grace for their faith and their salvation. And yet that very same parable can confound others, even people of brilliant minds, and might even make them full of skepticism and even anger toward God. So what lesson should we take away from all of this? Well, in part, such inconsistency in comprehension and response to the parables 
and by extension, comprehension and response to the Scriptures as a whole is actually quite consistent with God's own nature and His promises and His plans. And that is because our faith is not a result of our intellectual brilliance or our lack thereof, but rather it rests on and it flows from God's grace and God's work alone. Jesus even thanked His Father in prayer that He had hidden the truths of the Gospel from the wise and the discerning, and yet had revealed them to little children, that is, those who accept His gifts willingly. Today we heard the parable of the vineyard and the wicked tenants. A man plants a vineyard. He took the initiative. He took the risk. He put up the resources. Planting a vineyard is not an investment that brings immediate dividends. Rather, it's a long-term proposition. It's not like corn or soybeans or lots of other crops in which you can plant the seed in the spring and expect in the harvest in the late summer or fall to bring in a, a sellable thing, a crop that can bring cash immediately. No, it takes years and yields, years and years to yield results from a vineyard. Also, if you're at all familiar with vineyards, you also probably know that grapes are quite the hands-on sort of crop. Now, some crops require rather minimal intervention as they grow, but not grapes. To obtain the best outcome from a vineyard, both in quantity and in quality, the vines have to be carefully tended. Left to their own, grape vines will soon grow wild and soon produce lots and lots of small, sour, dry grapes. Only with diligent and proper watering and pruning and fertilizing will there be yielded a crop of juicy, sweet, full grapes. The man who had planted this vineyard in the parable entrusted the task of caring for this vineyard to others that he had placed in charge. He expected them to know what they were doing and to follow his wishes. And while he was away in a distant land, he waited patiently for his investment to bear fruit. It wasn't until he knew it was the proper time that he had sent others to collect what was due him. Now it bears mentioning here that the vineyard owner was not being greedy. He was not demanding that the entire crop be turned over to him. Rather, we are told that when he sent the first servant, it was done so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. He not only had reasonable expectations, he was willing to share much of the bounty of his blessings. But the tenants felt that they were entitled to all of it, not just a portion. They hadn't purchased the land. They hadn't planted the vineyard or taken the risk. And yet they wanted to treat it as if it was theirs alone. And thinking that they were safe from this far away owner, their behavior toward those that the owner had dispatched to request his fair share was both selfish and quite appalling. Note the tenants' escalating wickedness as the vineyard owner sent the succession of servants to them. The first servant, it tells us, they beat and sent away empty-handed. To the second, they did the same, but while they were at it, we are told that they also treated him shamefully. And the third, well, it went beyond just a, a beating and a sending away. It says that they wounded him and cast him out. And just like in our language, in Greek the word wound is a more severe thing than just some contusions and scrapes. 
And to be cast out is much more of a physical expulsion than a mere warning to scram. And then then the son is sent with the vineyard owner's sincere hope that he will be treated with respect. The use of the term, my beloved son, is not coincidental here. Jesus spoke these words and the Holy Spirit caused St. Luke to record them so that there would be no doubt about whom he speaks. The son, of the, the son that the vineyard owner has sent is none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who is called beloved by his Father at his baptism, at his transfiguration. But the Son fares no better with the tenants. And in fact, he is street, treated still worse. Out of self-centered jealousy, he is not only rejected, but he is killed. The tenants think they have it all figured out as if the faraway owner can do nothing about their intentions and their actions. Thusly were the Lord's servants, the prophets, treated in their day as well. And such was the son treated when he came to the place that was rightfully his. Like those vineyard tenants, we cannot claim ignorance of who rightfully owns the vineyard. We can try to treat it like it is ours, and we can think that it is solely for our purposes and our objectives, but it is merely ours to care for for a time. Likewise, we cannot claim ignorance of the owner's expectations or set them aside simply because we don't like the arrangement. What we ought to do is to respond positively to the message that the owner's servants bring us and to render all due respect to him who has allowed us to dwell here for a while. But we do not. For we reject the message and we reject the messengers, and therefore we reject him who sent it. He asks only for a portion of the bounty. The rest is ours to keep. We ought to trust that he will allow us to receive plenty of the harvest that he has planted. But woe be unto those who do not receive and heed the message of God's servants. They can resist them, and they can even fight against them, but there will be no victory no reward, no ownership in their futures. They may enjoy the fruits of their own labors at the expense of others, but at the end, the vineyard owner will come and with terrible recompense. And not only him, but also the son whom we have killed will return as well. Repent. Turn back from your path of wickedness and your selfish hoarding of this first and meager harvest eagerly embrace and receive the message which the owner sends you through his servants. Even more eagerly, receive and embrace the Son whom he has sent. He means his coming for your good, that you might receive a share of the great inheritance without any reduction in its fullness to others. It is a gift without limits. It is a vineyard without bounds, a harvest of plenty that will never end, will never be used up, will never be sour or bitter, will never be dry. There is no sixth Sunday in Lent. The vineyard is already planted. It has already bloomed. It has already formed its fruit. The sun has begun his journey to visit the tenants, riding on the foal of a donkey, moving steadily your way, riding up the road from Bethany. How will he be greeted when he reaches you? With joyous shouts of Hosanna in the highest, will you bless the Son of God and the Son of David who comes in the name of the Lord? Or will you hoard the owner's benevolent gifts, 
thinking that none are rightly His, but mistakenly deluding yourself that it's all yours with no accountability, no consequence to your selfishness and your disobedience. The fact is, you have thrown the Son out of the vineyard time and time again. You have done your level best to kill Him, and you have even accomplished it. And yet the good news and the great miracle in all of this is that the Son and His Father are patient with you. They are generous to you, and they seek to restore fellowship with you. The Son is no longer dead, for He lives, and He now waits with the Father for a new harvest. He has grafted you into a new vine in a new vineyard, one which is rooted in His very own life and perfection. So long as you remain connected to that vine, you will be sustained and nourished. You will grow and you will thrive, and you will continue to receive His power through word and sacrament. The message that the Father has sent to you through His servants and His Son has not always been turned aside, but has taken root in you and even now bears good fruit. The blood that you shed when you killed the Son, it is no longer on your hands. It no longer hangs over your head shouting condemnation. Now it flows freely in a cleansing flood that covers you with a miraculous bloody white robe of righteousness. Now it is outpoured for you, not spilled on the ground to curse you, but splashed on the altar to redeem you, gathered in the cup to forgive your sins and the sins of all who confess Him as the rightful heir. He is the chief cornerstone and the foundation of your faith. In His mercy, He will neither crush you nor dash you to pieces to your death. No, He will build you up. He will knit you together into the one holy Christian and apostolic church where with all the heirs of the vineyard, you will be gathered together, sharing in the harvest that never ends, supplying the banquet which never ends. In the holy name of Jesus, Amen.